Hey friends, eight years ago, I set out to start a weekly show to learn Azure from the people who built it. Back then it was called Windows Azure and I used Visual Studio 2013 to build a website with the Azure SDK. A lot has changed over the years, but one constant has been Jason Zander at the helm. We're gonna explore the past, the present, and the future of Azure today on Azure Friday. Hey friends, I'm Scott Hansman and it's Azure Friday. I'm here with Jason Zander. How are you, sir? Doing well, Scott. How are you? I'm living the dream. Always learning about Azure, doing all kinds of fun stuff. Get to talk to cool people on Azure Friday. We're coming up on eight years of Azure Friday, 700 plus episodes. Uh, wow. Super fun stuff. This is your first time, I think, on Azure Friday. I think so. I think yeah. so. It's, it's It's been a while since you guys have, have, have done a session like this, so it's good to be here. Yeah. And then we're also going to do double duty. I'm going to put this show on Hansel Minutes, which is my own personal podcast. We're going to use the audio twice. And I was looking into this and it turns out that you were actually on Hansel Minutes many, many years ago. I'm looking here at episode 63 and this will be episode 800 and something, something. So you were on the show about 14 plus years ago. And I was looking at your LinkedIn here. You're coming up on 30 years at Microsoft. I think I probably have one extra gray hair for every episode you have done since then. <laughs> Mine, uh, I have no more hair, but I do have a lot of gray hair in the beard. So it's uh, it's kind of a no. nice inverted thing that's going on here. <laughs> um, and you and I worked together for a little while when we were doing ASP.NET back in the day because uh, you were on the CLR. That's right. Yeah, no, that's right. Yeah, uh, I was one of the original software developers on the Common Language Runtime. Uh, did a bunch of work in the compilers and the metadata formats and a whole bunch of things like that. And then eventually ran the team before I moved on to other different products. Yeah. Um, a lot of people don't realize that there's a lot of VPs and like, you know, people in power at Microsoft that were devs. You were a dev for like 10 years. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah. At one point I had code and control alt delete. I, it's probably it's probably gone by now. Um, but nonetheless, yeah, I, I was a dev for a number, number of years. So yeah. Now you have I think it's fair to call you a Microsoft lifer because you came in straight out of uh, out of college out of Minnesota State. And uh, have you worked anywhere else but Microsoft? Uh, IBM. I did spend a bit of time at IBM. I worked on a couple of versions of the AS400 uh, and a few things like that along the way, which was some good experience. And at the time when I joined Microsoft, this is 1992, the company had about 10,000 employees and we were still shipping DOS. I think it was shipping DOS 4 and working on DOS 5, if I remember correctly. Wow. Um what are some good things and some bad things about having only worked at a couple of places? I mean, I think that there's something to be said for huge amounts of organizational change. You've seen the cloud go from not a thing to a thing and, yeah. and been involved in that. But then, uh, you know, you look at other people's resumes and it's like nine months here and a year there and two years there. What, what are the pros and cons? Well, I think, and, and, and you know, I pretty much have spent my adult life at uh, at Microsoft um, and raised three kids with my wife. I'm, I'm an empty nester now, so yeah, that just kind of shows how, how time flies. Uh, but look, I think from a Microsoft perspective, my original plan had been to come to Microsoft, maybe do four and a half years, you know, then go on and figure out what it looked like and didn't really stick to that plan. Um, but you know, the, the big the big thing that was cool about Microsoft uh, the whole way through is just the variety of things that we're always doing and new categories getting created and you know, kind of disrupting ourselves even, you know, when, when it's time to go do that. And so there's always been something new to go learn, something exciting to go do and, and things like that. And so that's why I've pretty much been here, but worked on a lot of products and a lot of different technology along the way. 
that's an interesting point that we're now like 130, 150,000 people. Microsoft is not one company of 150,000 people. It's just like, you know, a hundred or even a thousand little mini companies. And I've always yeah. said like, when are you going to leave? It's like, well, I'm not going to, I'll just go and work on Xbox or I'll go and work on M365. I'll go work on teams. Like these are all like little silos and stuff. Yeah. Yeah. And, 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 uh, Let's put it this way: They're all new product categories, technologies, new things that you can you can learn. Uh, I'm just being pedantic on silos because silos implies that silo wasn't a good word. Sorry about that. Yeah, you know, which which you know, and, and and that's you know, frankly, one of the nice things about Microsoft. We used to be silos. We used to have you know, like in fact, you know, there was times where it was actually hard to move to some of those divisions because like, well, you weren't actually somebody who started here. So why would we want you here? I mean, there was some very interesting cultural stuff historically, uh, and that stuff is gone. Um, which is which is fantastic. I, I was really excited to see some of the culture changes along the way. But nonetheless, you're at a point of there's always some cool tech. There's always something new to learn. Um, that's that remains constant. Yeah, yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, I think in the context of silos back in the day, they kind of shipped the org chart, and now there's so much collaboration within. Uh, like like I work in DevDiv, but I work on Azure DevTools, which is part of Azure, which is so it's like in yeah. the old days that might have been in a vertical, but now uh, the lines are so blurred, it's really just making great developer tools that happen to be in the cloud. Oh yeah, no, absolutely. And, 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 and of course I, yourself, you know, Scott, Scott Guthrie, a bunch of us, you know, we're also DevDiv, you know, folks for a very, very long time. The one nice thing about DevDiv that was actually true the whole way through is that we always serve the rest of the company. You know, it was not only the developer tools, Visual Studio, .NET, you know, and then eventually Java and VS Code and things like that, but then also the idea of looking at the platforms and figuring out how to go service those. And so in some ways, I feel like the rest of the company uh, has taken on that same kind of model where there's a lot more collaboration than there used to be in the past. Uh, but the nice thing about DevDiv was always, you also got that viewpoint of pretty much the whole company, uh, which you didn't always get if you were in one of the kind of more vertical products. That's a really good point. You know, actually my buddy, uh, Mike Harshover in Windows, who I've been working a lot with on, we work on Surface together and WSL, the Windows Subsystem for Linux. He, he made this comment in a meeting recently where he's like, you know, there's like 8 billion people on the planet and they're all touched by technology, but there's maybe 60 million-ish, that's just a number, uh, developers. Mm -hmm. 60 million yep. developers are kind of like wagging the dog to help the lives and improve the lives of 8 billion people, 8,000 million people. So to be a developer is a really empowering and, you know, place of, of honor. We need to be careful yeah. about that. Well, and, and then also our support um, for different types of developers has, has grown tremendously as well. Because, uh, of course, you know, you, you go back 30, even 40 years, um, you had a lot of systems programming, much lower level, you know, kind of stuff. And then we came along with .NET and dynamic languages, and now you got low code, no code environments and things like that. And, you know, this was kind of like the natural outcome of VBA originally in the office suites. And there was a lot of, you know, kind of, I guess, the you know, citizen developers today, but essentially accountants and, you know, people that worked in insurance companies and, and, and folks that weren't actually technically trained as a computer scientist. But that was one of the magic things about Microsoft, um, you know, having come from a from a different kind of environment. Um, that was pretty actually cool. And it's actually kind of cool to see some of that coming back and becoming even mainstream now. Yeah, I actually started some of my early work when I was an intern going through university uh, coding in, in access. 
mm. which was like yeah. making full applications in Access, and then graduated to doing that full applications in VB and VB2 oh, yeah. and 3, yep. <laughs> and then writing the C code to make the controls that other people would work. So I yep. went down level and other people went up level. And now, you know, you can be a developer on Power Apps, or you could be a device driver writer, and you're still both a developer. That's right. Yeah. Look, I, I wrote a couple of X controls um, that you know shoved in through the automation model of Office. You know, because it was kind of like eventually, you know, the automation piece exposed to customers was never quite sophisticated enough, and you know, so like you know, yeah, I, I wrote some DLLs that plugged in and pretended like they were part of VBA, um, and that was before Olay, by the way, right? So it wasn't quite as simple back then, but yeah. Yeah. Now, this is not your grandparents' Microsoft. Uh, certainly, there were different leaders over the last 30 years. There were different philosophies. How much of the, the change, the, the openness, the positivity, the inclusion that Microsoft has had kind of comes from the top versus kind of comes from the bottom? Because you've seen that entire experience change. Yeah, I think you get a little bit of both, to be honest. I mean, like, so, so think of it this way. Um, I think there has definitely been a, a push, and I give uh, Satya a huge amount of credit. Um, you know, he talks very much about the growth mindset and and you know being a, a learn it all, not a not a know it all, and that's something to try to practice. Um, even some of the ways in which we've been running the businesses at Microsoft are designed to get more cross company synergy. Um, hate to use a twenty dollar business buzzword, but essentially people working together, like. Wow, what a concept. Like we should be doing that. So the top-down thing has helped. And from a bottom-up perspective, I think the cultural thing is happening, especially with uh, younger uh, engineers, or I should say engineers that are graduating from university and coming into the workforce have never known a world that didn't have open source and that didn't have some kind of collaborative environment. And not just the, you know, the IT, you know team project that you had to do to force you to figure out how to work on a team, you know, but actually in a community. Um, and so like you get both of those. And I think that the, that can be a really nice force for everyone in between to say, wow, like we should continue to update. And I will just tell you that um, this is, it, it's really awesome. Like I, I have, there are folks that work on Office 365, you know, very good systems programmers, engineers, the folks that do like Exchange Online and, you know, all the underlying substrate work and stuff. That's really complicated, you know, distributed systems work. And as we've collaborated more on, hey, how could that natively take advantage of Azure? Um, we've actually got developers from that team actually working in our code base. And uh, can you imagine someone from Office checking in code to Windows 25 years ago? I mean, like, that may not have been too common. Um, so, like, <laughs> but these, these are good examples of, of, you know, kind of how you can evolve. Um, so back in 2005-ish, I know that uh, Ray Ozzy was the CTO at Microsoft, and he had been talking about, you know, internet services requiring kind of a different way of thinking about services. Did we... Was there a cloud before the cloud? Because, you know, I mean, I'm old, you're old. I'm going to go ahead and say that. Um, yeah. I, when I was working on like 800.com, like, which was a big, uh, you know, Amazon, pre-Amazon yeah. thing. When the, when the boss says scale the web farm, we go to PC micro center, we buy the racks, we rack them over the weekend. He comes back on a Monday. The thing is scaled out. We were physically, we had to run our own hosting. When did hosting become the cloud? When did hosting become other people's servers in the cloud? 
I think you can probably even look back, and I think if Kevin Scott were here, he'd probably say, "Hey, what about Loud Cloud? What about?" I mean, there there was some like precursors yeah. back then um, that were showing the way on some of this. And then if you look at it from the internals perspective, uh, Azure has a particular brand date that's on Wikipedia, but of course Xbox Live has been around for two decades. And if you look at the work that was done with BPOS, BPOS D, and some of the you know original hosted Office before it became Office 365 and became much more commonplace, those were essentially cloud technologies. And the way in which you know Live Messenger and a bunch of other products that again 20 years back, they were actually operated pretty much you know very similar to a cloud. The big thing they weren't doing was infrastructure as a service. Um, you know, and bang, another good example. So it's not that we haven't had these distributed systems that, you know, some of the internally, some of this technology that we would eventually even harvest and just make available for customers. Microsoft has been doing this for 20 years. Um, so then it really just comes down to, well, when did you decide to turn it into something to make available for customers and then productize it, you know, so that that was possible. I see. So loud cloud, 1999. So people like the, the term cloud, the thoughts there about an ex uh, an elastic infrastructure as a service was being thought about a very long time ago, like you said, mm -hmm. 20 plus years. Um, and then it, is it fair to say that before it was branded, before it became Windows Azure and then Microsoft Azure, there were several clouds. Like you said, Xbox had their own cloud yep. and Office had their own cloud. No, that's right. I would say from a Microsoft perspective, and, and ironically, you go back to the org conversation, um, you know, the way things were designed is you would basically go in and you build out your technology based on your business need. And so, X, you know, basically the Xbox Live cloud was built in a particular way. BPOS D was built by a different team. Bing was built by yet another team, you know, et cetera. Uh, and so you did have a lot of kind of fragmentation, uh, not a lot of sharing between them, except for the data centers and some of the networking. Those things, you know, were actually shared. So like, you know, for example, you didn't have a case where each one of those properties would go off and say, hey, I think I'm gonna go lease some lease some property someplace and go set up in a, in, in a colo. Um, that was actually shared infrastructure for, for a very long time. But what went in it, not so much, mm. two decades ago. But of course, we and, and, and part of that is we have actually made significant progress. This is when I get back into the, I, you know, we've got devs in office checking into Azure. Uh, that's because, you know, basically a huge part of 0365, Xbox, et cetera, are Azure applications now. And, uh, you know, we had to go build it first. And and, and it, it was recursive, to be honest, because like, you know, parts of the core of Azure came from some of those original work that was done even over the, you know, the 10 years before Azure. Um, so that, because there's some great systems work down there. We were able to harvest some of that as well. Uh, and then just to make sure that we expand an acronym, you said BPOSD, the Business oh, yeah. Productivity Online, the dedicated, it was a group of hosting services that was Exchange and SharePoint, what used to be called Office Communications, and then Live Meeting. So a cloud yeah. of its own before the cloud. And, you know, again, for anybody that when I mentioned DOS, thought that meant denial of service. Um, some of these terms, you know, <laughs> they had different meaning back then. And, and, and to, to your point, that, that particular product was Microsoft's uh, thinking about, you know, like, hey, what we really do as a company is build software and give it to customers or partners and, you know, they license it and they run it. Uh, that was our business model. And, you know, of course, we still have that business model for a lot of different products. The idea of taking that and then us doing the hosting of the data center on behalf of the customer, 
that was really kind of weird at the time. Now, of course, today, fast forward, you know, 20 years later, and it's, well, it's SaaS. Like, why wouldn't you go do SaaS? It's like, well, because SaaS didn't exist back then. So, you know, that was actually, again, you think about the history of the cloud and Microsoft. It's not just the 10 years of Azure. We've actually got a rich history that's probably about 20 years back uh, overall from an experience perspective. Mm -hmm. Now, when I think back to myself racking servers, I think about actually more organizing the wires. I, I remember flying uh, F5 networks consultants in to help us with things like uh, round robin uh, DNS, which was you know yep. a big deal in the early 90s. We hadn't thought about how to do stuff like that. Totally. But from a technology perspective, there's one thing that stands out to me as something that would have required before the cloud happened. And it was that it was called software defined networking. How yes. fundamental of that? Because when you're announcing Azure, you know, and Project Red Dog in 2010 or so, was software defined networking a thing yet, or were there still people in a back room somewhere with cables? It, you know, like back then, and of course, this, this is quite a while ago, we did have software defined networking. That was actually a core part of the original Azure prototypes. The, you know, you mentioned Red Dog, that was the prototype name for the small team that started to, to prototype Azure before you know, we went live in 2010. Mm -hmm. um, so we absolutely had, you know, software defined networking. I would say the scope and the scale, of course, has gone significantly higher. And again, some of the original, uh, you know, kind of web facing, you know, hyperscale properties, you know, Bing and et cetera, um, you know, Bing had, you know, software defined networking. And we actually harvested a lot of that code into Azure, actually a big part of, of Bing, the core of Bing that actually did scheduling and nodes and networking actually came and became Azure networking uh, and a big chunk of Azure core, uh, you know, Azure compute. Um, so we did have that. But there was other parts of the system, again, we're going way back, that were actually run by more classic, almost IT style things. So scripts and queues and you know programming interfaces and things like that, that was not really software defined networking. It was basically queue dispatch type stuff, right? Which is kind of what you'd expect. Um, but now, now fast forward, not only do we have, have had software defined networking for the last 10 years, but along the way we invented Sonic and released that and, and other ways of, you know, again, going back open source. Sonic is a great example, right? How do we go back and actually take some of that technology and actually make it available to others and encourage an ecosystem to get created. Well, and not only did you harvest some things from Bing, you also harvested Satya himself from Bing during the early Azure days. So he had that experience in the emerging cloud and, and then eventually you know, came in to transform that group. Yeah, absolutely. And, and the nice thing about that, since Satya did run Bing, and of course Satya had also been you know, back in, you know, doing business apps and things like that, kind of more in the classic server and back end software side of the house. So he had a really good background for that, um, which was super helpful. So that when he came over originally to Azure before becoming CEO, you know, he had the experience of both, like server related products that we'd license and sell and users run and the cloud uh, in between those. And so actually give Satya credit for kicking off some of the convergence work that, you know, I've spent this, I spent a significant amount of time getting the company kind of on that same page. Um, and that was, you know, even things like, hey, let's optimize for global maxima, not local optima. That was okay. Wow, that's not exactly what we've been doing, but it's actually smart, um, you know. And that that those kind of principles were things that Satya brought in and said we need to go do this. And then, frankly, you know, it was it was you know, his idea for us to take some of that core part of Bing and say, you know, there's some really good high scale distributed systems in here, and we've got Azure and Azure Fabric. Um, you know, we we should figure out ways of pulling those together. And that was one of the early convergence projects was how do we take the high scale stuff that works for like a property like Bing 
uh, but then also make it work with something like Azure Fabric, which you know in a lot of ways was designed more for what you might think of like your enterprise workloads. Like I've got virtual machines and I'm running SAP, and you know, which is hugely different than you know I want to shred laugh out loud cats and petabytes of data every single day. Those are two completely design patterns, uh, and so us bringing those types of code together and creating one cloud out of it actually turned out to be a, a, a real magic combination. So I, I was watching a video of you from about 15 years ago where you were breaking down the internals of the CLR and you were talking about like low level stuff. Like I, I feel sometimes like I'm talking to you and it's like, hey, I'm the guy driving the race car, but hang on, let's just stop. Let's put the race car up on blocks and let's go underneath and let's talk about disassembling the engine. Yeah. How do you find the ability or the, I mean, how is it possible to, to lead something at a high level and think about business requirements and OKRs and global scale, but then you're also able to apparently drop down to the packet sniffer level and talk about that. You know, how do you stay both technical and high level business focused and deeply technical at the same time? Uh, we were debugging a bug check two weeks ago um, that had an impact, um, which is quite interesting. So kernel level, you know, mode, you know, crash uh, someplace. Um, yeah, I mean, like, so the, uh, I guess, you know, just the way my brain is wired, um, I understand stuff better when I know how it works. And I can do hopefully a better job helping guide it and spirit it forward. And, you know, the reason why I was a developer for so long is I've always kind of had an, an intuitive sense of how systems and trade-offs and stuff kind of work, um, you know, which has been super helpful for me. I think that the, so I, I do actually know how a bunch of this stuff works. Now, at, at the same time, when your team becomes bigger and becomes, you know, big enough, especially, you're doing your team a disservice by trying to be the armchair architect, the armchair developer. Um, and I'm probably guilty of doing that way too much. Uh, totally get it. My, my, my friend Scott's probably an armchair PM. I mean, like, but you know, like we're, you know, we're kind of wired in a similar kind of way, just different disciplines. Um, you know, so, so I, I think it is helpful, but you have to actually concentrate on what are the higher level goals? You know, what are you trying to accomplish? But I have found it quite useful that when I'm talking with teams and we're going through stuff and they're, oh, it's going to take, you know, four or four months to do this. It's like, well, really? I mean, let me let me ask some questions. And then maybe sometimes the, the numbers change after we finish having a conversation that that can be quite helpful. Yeah. Uh, my, my boss, Scott Hunter, has called that having a good BS detector. Yep. So he's not saying in any way that he's going to jump in there and necessarily debug that that dump with people. He's got other things to focus on, but he can definitely go, eh, really? When it comes to estimates or architectural yeah. guidance. Yeah, I've known more than a few folks like myself, and there's some funny stories in the past where people said something would take too long and you know they went off and coded it over the weekend and came back in and said you know about that thing um here it is i mean <laughs> so again you don't want to disempower your team you don't want to go do that but sometimes it can be good just to you know well for one thing establish your understanding because this, this cuts both ways like that was an example that way let me give you an example of the other direction which is if you think you understand how it works but you really don't you can also have the other fallacy, which is you're trying to force people to do things too quickly. It's more complicated than you think. And just because you see the picture in your head doesn't mean you have an accurate, you know, kind of idea of what it really takes. And so that can actually be a downside of, you know, being super technical is that, you know, sometimes you just, if you don't do the homework, you got to be careful about trying to tell people they could do it faster, they could do it more efficiently. It's like you, you got to trust the team, you know, they're professionals for a reason. Yeah, you definitely have to trust the team. So kind of fast forwarding from the past to the present, how many regions are we now? 50 
60 regions? Oh, it's like 60 an ounce, something like that. I can't, I can't keep count. I, I, yeah. <laughs> I see it like every week, but yeah, yeah keep going up and, you know, and every, all over the world, we keep seeing more and more. More and more regions. There's like over a hundred services plus uh, there's also the hybrid cloud. So you got both Azure Stack yep. and Azure Arc, which is unbelievable. Like I actually have a, um, uh, a stack of Raspberry Pis in a cool. Kubernetes cluster, and I can add that to Azure and control it from a plane in the Azure portal as yep. if it's a piece of Azure and then running the services. Locally. Yeah, that's really cool. It, it is really cool. That was uh, Mark Rusinovich did a similar kind of demo when we first came out with that. And then he actually had a dapper on top of it so he could actually test the, you know, <laughs> getting all the components distributed in the right way. So, you, yeah. You couldn't have conceived of those things, right? How many, what, what are parts of Azure that have surprised you or just like, oh, wow, okay. Like it's not just websites in the cloud. You're like, that's a thing I didn't think we were going to be able to do. Well, I think that, you know, it's, if you look at some of the most interesting workloads and things that we've had to work on, I'd say, you know, kind of like doing HPC, you know, massive HPC clusters is super interesting. Uh, AI supercomputer, which of course Kevin Scott has blogged about, uh, when you're doing massive scale, you know, work and, and, and et cetera. I mean, just read the blogs and AISC, those things are like unbelievable. Uh, and that was not, you know, like I remember going back again, when Azure was a prototype, it was a very, very long time ago, we knew the name of every cluster. Um, you know, it was in a spreadsheet because you're, you're prototyping, right? You haven't released to your customers yet. But you actually knew the name of the clusters. You know, I, I pointed that out to somebody yesterday who's been here forever. Like, oh yeah, Prodap 03A. I hated that thing. Um, <laughs> it's like, and of course, you know, at this point, that's just ridiculous. I mean, you've got, you know, such, such volume, such scale, you know, that, that's just silly. Um, and I think any new hire to the team would go, how is that even possible, really? I mean, like, you know, Again, go back far enough before you released it. And you're still prototyping. That's that's yeah. what the world starts off like. Somebody asked me, uh, how do you know it's a cloud? And I says, if you can visit your website and touch the machine it's on, it's not yep. a cloud. But if you can't touch it because the disk is here and the computer is there <laughs> and the memory is there, then it's probably a cloud because it's really well distributed and elastic. Yep. Yeah, exactly. So yeah. looking, looking forward, I know that you're really excited about quantum. Is that the thing that like... Because, I mean, you've been here 30 years. Like, yeah. you don't have to come to work in the morning. You could just, like, hang out. You said you're an empty nester. There must be yeah. something that gets you up and excited. Yeah, no, there's 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 a bunch of stuff that I think is is, is still super interesting. Um, you know, that's, that's, that's great. And, you know, the cool thing is I know Microsoft has done amazing stuff since it was founded 45 years ago. It's going to do amazing stuff in the future. When we're gone, any of us is gone too, it's going to be pretty awesome. So I'm not really worried about Microsoft continuing to innovate. Um, but picking a particular technology that I think is interesting to look at, I do think quantum computing uh, is incredible. And it's one of the ways that I you know, could kind of describe this is if you look, you know, like here's a way to think about it. The human brain is using like, you know, what, 20 watts of power to operate got like what two petabytes of onboard storage uh, it's got ai you know basically inferencing machines built in from your eyeball to your brain to your muscles wow okay so ask yourself what would it take for us to do the equivalent inside of a data center and it's probably megawatts right and it's not petabytes it's you, you know it's at least petabytes but lots and lots of petabytes and then you know lots and lots of cores and lots of electricity and and so if you think about this there's kind of this thing which is okay we've we've invented you know chips and science and everything else and they do amazing things much better than humans can and they scale unbelievably and then there's nature 
and nature does some pretty freaking amazing things too. And so if I look at something like, you know, you know DNA storage, which we prototyped, you know, which is really kind of cool, you know, massive in the last 2000 years, hold a bunch of data. The reason why I mentioned this around quantum is quantum leverages quantum mechanics. And so if you think about that, that's leveraging pure nature and the mechanics of that, and not just the sort of things that we would do in a typical chip, you know, with with basically ones and zeros and basically making sure we can control electrons and make them smaller and smaller. But, you know, actually, you know, with, with quantum mechanics, that, that's kind of cool. I mean, that's really kind of amazing. There's a really fun quote from a person named Daisy on Twitter who said, have you ever just code something and you're like, oh, this is a hack, but it works. And then you say you remember that a CPU is just a rock that we tricked into thinking. Yes. And then, they, and then at the bottom, they said, well, not to oversimplify, first you have to flatten the rock and then put lightning inside it. And then you have a thing that thinks. That's amazing that it, this entire stack consistently continues to work. Yeah, no, it, it, it certainly is. It certainly is. And, you know, it's, it's just a testament to lots and lots of decades worth of, worth of innovation. And yet, if you think about, you know, what does the world look like going forward? I think leveraging physics in a more raw form to use physics as opposed to, again, you know, just silicon and substrates and controlling electrons and buses and blah, blah, blah. Like that is actually an amazing thing. Being able to explore a solution set um, all at once using wave functions and algorithms that, you know, get closer to waves. I mean, like, holy cow. I mean, that's that's just significantly different. And of course, we'll keep improving the classic work and everything else as well. There's a significant amount of work being done there also. Yeah, I remember starting with my first computer. Well, before there was Apple, you know, Apple IIe and all that kind of like, you know, TRS-80s. But like when I bought my first PC, I think it was a 25 megahertz. Yeah. And now we've kind of been stuck at about four or five gigahertz for a while. And we always hear about nanometers and we're getting down into the quantum level. What you're saying is, all right, we're going to hit quantum effects. Let's start using those quantum effects for, you know, for good. Let's work with physics and work with nature. Yeah. I mean, the general theme there is, is right, which is, you know, figure out where does nature do something better or more unique um, and then go pull that in. I think the, the the big difference on some of these is that your classic CMOS chips, you know, yeah, I mean, at some point things are, are governed by the underlying physics. Um, that, that part's fine. But the approach for quantum computing is fundamentally different, right? The, the, the approach there of a qubit is basically the notion that I can actually explore the entire solution space with the right algorithms. And again, it's it's the old, you know, it's the old I'm, I'm beaming light at the split thing and why does it kind of gather in a couple of places? There's these things called waves. And like, if you think of that particular screen that, you know, lets the photons through in particular ways as the algorithm, that's how you find the answer. I'm spraying every possibility at it and the algorithm picks up the one that matters. Right. Um, Right. That's kind of an interesting, interesting way to kind of twist the way it works. And of course, that means that it, it only works, you know, we think uh, for algorithms that lend themselves to that kind of pattern. So it's not going to be used for everything that's out there. But there are certain things like material science and chemistry and you know, everybody's, you know, talk about crypto. But, you know, those are the sorts of things that I think will light up. Right. Let nature propose all possible solutions and then pick the Loki variant that works for us out sense. of the multiverse. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Very cool. Well, thank you so much, uh, Jason Santa, for hanging out with us today on both Azure Friday and on Hansel Minutes. I appreciate your time. Well, thank you, Scott. I appreciate it. It's been a long time, but uh, it's been really great to be here. Thank you. All right. We're having all kinds of fun here on Azure Friday. Hope you stick around. We've got a catalog of over 700 episodes. And if you're listening to this on Hansel Minutes, there's over 800 episodes for you to check out, including one with Jason Zander many, many years ago. Thank you. And we'll see you again next week.
Hey, thanks for watching this episode of Azure Friday. Now I need you to like it, comment on it, tell your friends, retweet it. Watch more Azure Friday.